0: Regarding our travels through the book of Leviticus, we are presently at the tail end of a section known as the Holiness Code, whereby God is articulating to His people, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, a new way that they were to live, that both was sanctified to Him, as well as consecrated for His purposes. And to accomplish this, Five chapters, Leviticus 11 through 15, are set aside to kind of designate certain things and behaviors as either being unclean or prohibited and or clean or permissible over the last several weeks on a wide array of varying topics. We have seen God, for the most part, tell his people that in order for me to create you into a people so fundamentally different from the world around you that you would be my light unto that world, I want you to know that it is okay for you to do this. That's permissible. But it's not okay for you to do that. This is clean, but that is unclean. And, And As a matter of fact, you can enjoy these things but you're forbidden from those. I want you to handle these type of situations and people that way, but not the way that everybody else handles them. In way of kind of a quick recap, in chapter 11, we worked our way through what is commonly referred to as the dietary guidelines. As the Hebrews approached the land of promise through these prohibitions to their diet, (coughs) God was wanting them to always remember that they were not scavengers, nor were they to be predators. Those were the two types of animals that were designated as unclean. Instead, as they approached this land of promise, they were to place their complete trust in God and God alone for their provisions. In chapter 12, we see an incredible demonstration of God's grace towards a woman who's just given birth. While the curse of sin had resulted in a real pain in childbirth, God tenderly establishes a framework whereby the woman had time to rest and heal and nurse her little one. In chapters 13 and 14, God lays out a very specific set of guidelines for how the people were to handle leprosy, or in the Hebrew language, syrath. Well, the ancient cultures viewed all sickness as being the judgment of the gods. In this new ordering of things, the God of Israel makes an important distinction between what was to be seen as his judgment and normal illness. Not only does he establish a very detailed set of procedures for how the priests were to diagnose a leprous infection in an individual or an outbreak in a person's clothing, but we also see that there were protocols for diagnosing leprosy if it broke out in a dwelling, a home. Throughout all these things, God also sets up protocols for what was to be done When a person who had been judged by God on account of sin also experienced his cleansing touch. We looked at that last Sunday. This morning, we turn to Leviticus 15. And in doing so, we're going to kind of wrap up this entire section, the Holiness Codes, but we're going to look at the guidelines and stipulations pertaining to, I know what excites all of you, bodily fluids, and more specifically, discharges. Now, before we dive into the text and discuss the larger ideas God is communicating to his people through the passage, I, I do want to note just how radical this chapter is from a medical perspective. With the scientific advancements that, that have taken place over, let's say, the last 150 or 200 years, we understand that human infection often spreads through the transmission of bodily fluids between individuals. We also understand how certain diseases are even transferred through sexual activities. Because of this realization, modern societies wisely place a huge emphasis on personal hygiene as well as general sanitation in order to combat contagion, the spread of illness. Sadly, it should be mentioned that we do less to encourage healthy sexual practices which is why STDs are rampant in our American culture. And yet, while commonplace today, keep in mind these type of sensical practices that we take for granted are relatively new. Case in point, we take for granted the fact that washing with water and antibacterial soap or what's called scrubbing down before a surgery, that wasn't adopted by the medical community until the 1800s. Like the, the simple reality or fact of history is that for most of the, of, of the, the time humanity has been walking this planet, whatever disease it was that brought you to a hospital, it wasn't that that killed you, it was the disease you contracted at the hospital that ended up doing you in. You see, from a, a very practical angle, the two core practices that God establishes here in Leviticus 15 are important. First, there was one that limited the contact of a person with a discharge of bodily fluids. The second practice called for a complete washing if you did make contact. These things and this culture at this time period were revolutionary. You know God's law. We've mentioned this before. But God institutes these things not to limit our ability to enjoy life but to safeguard our ability to live. Now, before we get to the larger ideas at play here, let's kind of kick things off this morning by working our way through the entirety of this interesting chapter. Leviticus 15, beginning with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body or his flesh, His discharge is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Both scenarios here don't sound very appealing. In order to understand what's being communicated, and let's not take that for granted, you have to begin by defining what God is referring to when he describes a man who has a discharge coming from his body. The the same word discharge will be used later in the chapter in relation to women as well. So we need to define what is being described here. For starters, translating this Hebrew word discharge, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's really not cut and dry. In fact, in the Old King James Version, this word, this Hebrew word is translated as, quote, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, a running issue, discharge. To be fair, there are a few commentators who say that this word discharge is broad enough in the original language to include things like diarrhea or dysentery. And yet the challenge with this interpretation is twofold. First, it doesn't explain then why a sin and burnt offering are required once a man or a woman was cleansed of their discharge. I mean, if, say, this also applied to diarrhea, it's not applicable. If it were everyone in the ancient world, every time you had diarrhea, you'd have to go and make an offering that just would be silly. It wouldn't make any sense. The other obstacle from this kind of way of reading it is that there is no mistaking the context of the discharge itself is in relation to a sexual organ of whether the male or the female. Now, what makes a precise translation problematic is this Hebrew word we have here, zove. You know, it's only used in this one chapter. In the entirety of the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, this word discharge, zove, is only used in this one chapter it would seem that the most balanced way of interpreting discharge would be that there was some type of fundamental issue with the way the sexual organ itself was operating. That, that the organ wasn't operating according to the way God designed that organ to operate. Now, the, the, the reason that this definition of Zove is important is that it provides a more consistent application throughout the entirety of its use in the text. Let me give you an example of this right from the beginning. In verse 19 of this chapter, we'll read how a woman's normal menstrual cycle will be called a discharge of blood. But it's not going to require any type of offerings be made. Now, in this dynamic, the definition, zove, it's still applicable. Why? Because while this normal monthly cycle isn't caused by a specific sin of the woman, Female menstruation, well, it wasn't part of God's original design for a female biology. It came as a result of sin, the curse. Now that said, the reason a discharge in a male and one coming from an extended flow of the woman, flow of blood from the woman, verses 25 through 27, did require a sin and burnt offering, and this is probably the most universally accepted position for discharge, is it centered on the underlying causation of these ailments being from a venereal disease of some kind. In fact, Eugene Peterson's The Message actually presents verse 2 the following way, quote, When a man has a discharge from his genitals, end quote. What this means is the man God is referencing in the first 15 verses and the woman with a continual flow of blood later in the chapter were both experiencing the natural consequences of some type of sexual sin. Because of either a leaking water hose or a downward spout, the man and the woman were considered unclean, making any type of contact with such an individual... With such a condition, prohibited. Think of it this way. A sin in a private area of their lives fostered very public consequences and embarrassment. Now because of these running issues now made the man unclean, we're going to continue reading through, starting with verse 4, but this is where we're going to have a little fun. Over and over and over again, you're going to see that there's this constant refrain Unclean until evening. Constantly used throughout this passage. We'll tie this all together at the end of the Bible study. But as we read through it, just to keep you engaged in what's happening, when we get to such a refrain, I'm going to ask that you would read it with me. So when we get to that, that moment, I'm going to ask that together, we would just in unison say, let's try it. Unclean until evening. We'll do better. Let's, let's dive into it. Merry Christmas. Verse 4, every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies. And everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Good job. Now, applicable here to anyone that may be, let's say, tending to the man with such a discharge, we continue, he who sits on anything on which he who has the discharge sat, shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Verse 8, if he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, that's terrible. Probably likely referring to a sneeze or a cough, some type of incidental contact. But we're told that if this happens, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. There we go. Any saddle, you know, if you're riding, on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until evening. He who carries any of these things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be, you got it, unclean until evening. The vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Verse 13. And he who has the discharge is cleansed, when he who has the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, that he shall count for himself himself Seven days for his cleaning. So these are the protocols for when you've gotten better. He shall count seven days for cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, and <clears throat> he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself <coughs> two turtle doves and two young pigeons, and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and give them to the priests. Then the priest shall offer them, the one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. In his commentary on this passage on EnduringWord.com, David Guzik, he writes the following. The idea is of some obviously abnormal genital discharge. That's what's being described, indicating some type of disease, Guzik writes. When this occurs, the man was to be somewhat isolated in order not to pass the infection on to anyone else. After the discharge had stopped, a sacrifice would be made. Pretty good recapping of what we read. Now, it's worth pointing out, the two offerings required, the sin and the burnt offering, they reinforced the idea that the man's discharge had manifested on account of some type of sin, likely connected to sexual behavior. Following his cleansing, which was made evident by the fact that the discharge had been gone for an entire seven-day period, He would then wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water. Once clean, the man was then instructed to come to the tabernacle of meeting, where the presence of God was, and offer first the sin offering, an act that acknowledged his sin, you know, that caused such a discharge. But then he was to offer the burnt offering, which, if you go back to Leviticus 1, was this act of repentance and faith and a sacrifice that God would ultimately make for all of man's sin ultimate atonement. Verse 16. We kind of transition to a new section. Buckle up. Verse 16. If if any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash his body in water and be, you with me, unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. Now pause for a minute. According to these verses, if a man, let's say, were to fire off a round on accident or, let's say, empty his clip on purpose without the involvement of a female participant, God says he's unclean until evening and also needed to take the appropriate steps to, well, frankly, clean up his mess. He needs to wash his body. It makes sense. And then he needs to wash any of the garments or leather on which, you know, there ended up semen. All that seems very fair. Verse 18. Also, when a woman lies with a man and there is an omission of semen. Now, that implies that a woman's involved. They shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Fellas, I should say, as a Bible scholar, and in way of practical application. Including a woman in your emission of semen is a win-win. Not only is there less to clean up because there was no garments or leather involved, but God is very specific. You then afterwards get to take a bath with her. I'll tell you, you never thought you were going to get this this morning, but if after appropriate marital relations fellas if you turn and you're like hey let's take a shower and she's like i'm sleepy you just take her to leviticus 15 verse 18 and you say god has mandated this happen it's god's word not mine (laughs) on a more serious note it's also worth mentioning that we find presented here a great example of this concept of being unclean until evening not referring in all instances to moral impurity. Why is this? Well, because this is being placed into a, a marital context. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, God is clear that marriage, marriage is an honorable thing amongst everything. And then he adds that the marriage bed, what happens there, that's undefiled. Like understand, God intentionally separated the genders so that their reunification and sexual intercourse under the protective umbrella of a marital covenant would be fun, exciting. Like sex is is not just for procreation. It's for a unification through a gratification. And yet, while pleasurable and enjoyable, God here is adding a bit of sobriety to the process by instructing the two people involved. You know when you're done... It's probably wise to clean up. Good advice. Verse 19. If a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, then then she shall be set apart seven days, (coughs) and whoever touches her shall be, you with me? Unclean until evening. Now, what we're talking about here is a woman's normal monthly cycle. Continuing, everything that she lies on during this period of impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his, his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Keep in mind, the instructions here are, are quite relevant when you consider they didn't have the same type of sanitation products that we possess today. Continuing, whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes And bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed, or on anything in which she sits, when she touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all, so that her impurity is now on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall also be unclean. Now, in Leviticus 18, verse 19, we'll get to this, as well as chapters 20, uh, verse 18. God will forbid, very explicitly, a man from having sex with a woman during her cycle. That will be forbidden. In fact, the consequences for failing to obey that particular command would be severe. With that in mind, in this passage, God seems to be referring to a situation whereby the man and having intercourse with his wife, inadvertently, and well, likely to his own surprise, initiates her period. So she wasn't cycling yet. They're having marital fun. And then, uh-oh, this just happened. At which point, that individual's not expelled from the camp. This was an accident. But that person is unclean seven days. Now, what I find to be particularly interesting about this passage is is two things. First, all of these protocols about the woman being unclean, seven days, being separated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, while she's going through this normal period. Like, it indicates that God is very interested in the woman's well-being. Like, God cares about what's going on with a woman during those days, that time of the month. And He's like, She should be left alone. In fact, you could make the argument that God doesn't want to make her mad either. I told you there would be a moment you'd have to just accept my preemptive apology. That was one of them. And yet, knowing the serious, terrible experience that this time of the month is for a woman, as well as knowing kind of the horny, selfish nature of most men, God for her benefit, is like, fellas, she's off limits. In fact, God's like, shut it down. Not happening while she's on her period. The second thing that I like about this passage, I find interesting, is that in my study, I ran across one rabbinical perspective on the prohibition. And it made this argument that in creating a dynamic whereby a couple was forced by the law, to abstain from sex for a period of time each month, that God was kind of creatively establishing a monthly renewing of the marital relationship. You know, there are times that a designated and structured break from sex can help reignite the passion. And Kind of building that into the monthly structure is God's wisdom. Verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days... Other than at that time of her customary impurity. Or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. So she's off limits. She's unclean. So there's no doubt what's happening is not the normal period. There's something abnormal here. We're told she's unclean. Every bed on which she lies in the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity or her separation. Wherever she sits shall be unclean, as, if, as in the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be, with me, one last time, unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be, she shall be clean. On the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, Then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Now because this process for her cleansing of an abnormal flow of blood is identical to the man that had a discharge caused by sexual sin, it's safe for us to assume here similar causation. Closing out the chapter. Verse 31 Thus, the Lord says, you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die and their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for, for the one who has a discharge and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman and for him who lies with her who is unclean. Now one component of this chapter that is unmistakable, unmistakable Excuse me, and profound, centers upon a contrast here. That God is seeking to establish between His people and the pagan nations all around them, specifically in relation to human sex and this tabernacle of meeting. While sexual activities, prostitution, various perversions, were very typical in the worship and temple practices of ancient paganism. God wanted here, and he's establishing a clear delineation between his people and how they worshiped, and the pagan nations around them. You see, this designation of this constant refrain, unclean until evening, even being applied for accepted and permissible sexual relations between a husband and a wife. What it does here, what it intends to accomplish, is a prohibition of any intentional or even unintentional overlap with the worship of God. Like in no way, shape, or form does God ever want sex associated with or incorporated into His worship. It's a full stop. In fact, to disobey His commands so that if any of these things were to enter into the worship of God, He says it would defile His tabernacle, my tabernacle. And what would result? It would bring upon a certain death. It's the warning that the chapter closes with. The second thing I want to bring to your attention is the fundamental difference between this chapter and the ones that we looked at concerning leprosy. Like there is no doubt that experiencing the judgment of God, leprosy, was much more severe than the natural consequences for sinful choices. Like, there's, a, there's a parsing here that's important regarding this discharge did you notice that the diagnosing of it? Like with leprosy, what you have to do? You had to go present yourself at the priest. The priest was the one that had to examine. But here you get to self-examine. Like there's no going and presenting yourself to the priest. The priest got Yep, yeah, that's a discharge. Like there's none of that. This was self-policing. It was left up to the individual. Unlike leprosy, there's no inspection process in the declaration of being clean or unclean. While with leprosy, the cleansing process was extensive, you remember? With leprosy, I mean, it was a thing. Up to two weeks involved in, you know, living birds, killing birds, dipping in water, splashing, sacrifices, offerings, incubation. I mean, it was quite a thing, right? In this dynamic, in chapter 15, concerning a discharge, what was the, sac- like, what was the procedure? Well, it was very simple. It was just, you went to the tabernacle, you took two turtle doves or two young pigeons and you made that offering. And and this was the cheapest of all the offerings. Like, anyone could afford turtle doves or pigeons. I should add here, especially for those in the audience that maybe aren't married, that one of the other takeaways from the passage is not just that God takes sex very seriously, but that He takes sex outside of marriage. Seriously, In fact, sex outside of the marital covenant will yield negative consequences. Yes, in a very practical sense, STDs are real. That's what's being described. They're also at epidemic levels in our culture. However, even if you're careful with sex, please understand because God created sex as the instrument whereby two separate people become one person, intercourse outside of the marital covenant, it just robs you of a future experience that in the end you'll want reserved for your spouse. I don't want to hammer the point home other than to say, I have never met a couple who were so thankful that they slept around before getting married. Like in... in, Man, I'm so, honey, you're beautiful. I'm, our, man, our wedding night is just enhanced You know, by the 30 partners I've had in my life. Like I've never met somebody that had such an approach. Instead, there's always a, a, a measure of, of regret. Like, man, I know God's good. Oneness will happen, but I wish I had waited. That's often more typically the reaction. Now, while obviously different from leprosy, Leviticus 15 does establish a significant spiritual concept that plays an important role in the work that Jesus would ultimately accomplish. And this, I will just let you know, is when our study takes a very hard right turn. We talked about this before, that the entire idea of Leviticus is that God is establishing here through the laws a framework by which Jesus would accomplish bigger things. Chapter 15 of Leviticus is a wonderful example of this. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees. If you don't know about the Pharisees, they were the religious right. Like they were the law keepers. They get all over Jesus. Why? Because Jesus and his disciples were eaten, but they hadn't washed their hands before they ate. I mean, they're all a out, bit out of shape. You're violating the laws, hygiene, etc. And Jesus kind of gives this lengthy retort. Again, Mark 7, you can read it on your own. But he wraps up his response, making an incredible statement. He says this. Jesus says, There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things that defile a man. Yeah, it's interesting, but this concept, this big concept, spiritual concept of what comes out of a man being the thing, and we'll say a woman, being the thing that defiles him and her, that idea, that concept, why does that exist? Why is that true? Well, it's for one reason. The legal basis is established in all places, Leviticus 15. I mean, if you move beyond, you know, the fun stuff. You know, the emitting of semen and the flows of blood. Kinda of set that stuff to aside for a minute. The chapter, from a bigger perspective, it sets up a framework by which a person's internal condition of being unclean is determined how? By an outward discharge manifesting from a sinful decision in a contracted disease if you employ just a little bit of allegorical license, there is a macro application to this chapter that is astounding and makes this chapter, to all of our surprise, incredibly relevant. Now, I have found that whenever we have a chronic sin, something in a private area, something deep, Maybe it's, it's, we'll just call it a running issue in our lives. It never, ever, ever, ever stays hidden for long. Have you ever noticed that? Like whether it's a sexual proclivity or like this lust. Or whether it's a resentment. Or a growing insecurity. Something deep within that's festering. Animosity, a root of bitterness, maybe even a genuine hurt or an envy or a jealousy, a private matter. It's oozing. It's defiling. Ultimately, that issue, it'll always do something. You know what it'll do? It'll either bleed out, defiling almost every aspect of your life and those you come in contact with, making not just you unclean, but everyone around you unclean, when they, come and, when they just touch you. Or with time, that issue will emit a toxic discharge, defiling yourself and those around you. And, and sadly, you know what happens when a person, and you know these type of people, they bleed over everyone. They bleed over everyone with their problems and their complaints. Or if it's not bleeding all over everyone, they're just emitting seeds everywhere of discord, dissension. That person ends up, well, according to Leviticus 15, they'll always end up alone and isolated. And you know why? Those people are hard to hang out with. Isn't it hard to hang out with someone that every time you get done hanging out with that person, you feel like you have to just wash yourself off? Because of what's coming out of their life, what's coming out of their mouth, what discharges? You didn't know this was going there, did you? And it's like, I'm just tired of every time I hang out with this person, I got to go take a bath. I feel unclean. What they're saying, how they're talking about other people dissension, hurt. It's taxing, isn't it? So so what's the remedy? Like, how can a person find themselves cleansed of an internal ailment? How can you find yourself cleansed of, let's say, a chronic running issue in your life? Now, one aspect of this passage that I find really fascinating is how eerily silent it is to that question. Like, look again at the text. In verse 13, what do we read? When he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge. Hmm. And then then later on, in verse 28, (coughs) pretending to the woman, all we're told, but if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall be clean. Like, the text here it explains what should happen after the person is cleansed, but it provides absolutely no insight into the way in which a cleansing ever took place. You notice that? Now, from a, like bibliology, the way we study the Bible, since our text fails to answer that question, it's only logical and consistent that the answer to the question would be found in a story whereby an individual described in Leviticus 15 experiences a cleansing. That will tell us what we need to know. And in a bizarre twist, the only example we have of anyone fitting the description of Leviticus 15 is found in the Gospel of Luke. That tells us something very interesting. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 8. If you're c316.tv, it's already built in. But let me read you a little story. The only person, the only person we find as an illustration of Leviticus 15, we find in Luke 8 that a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians, could not be healed by any. Mark's account of this actually adds that she heard about Jesus and she concluded that if she could just touch His clothes, she would be made well. But she comes from behind, we're told. And touches the border of Jesus' garment. And immediately, instantly, her flow of blood that made her unclean, diagnosed in Leviticus 15, was immediately stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? Everyone denied it. Peter stepped up and he says, Master, the multitudes are thronging and pressing you. You say, who touched you? But Jesus says, somebody touched me. For I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she could not be hidden she came trembling and falling down before Jesus she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately and Jesus said to her daughter only instance Jesus ever calls someone daughter like this daughter my daughter be of good cheer your faith has made you well it's already happened go in peace Now the scene, and we just read it, it's chaotic. It's hectic. On one side you have Jesus making His way down an an ancient Middle Eastern street. There's a mob of people thronging and pressing about Him while all this is happening, unbeknownst to anyone but but I would say Jesus, and the shadows. There's this certain woman with a flow of blood for 12 years and she comes up behind. Why? Because she wants to touch the border of His garment. The idea here that she had a flow of blood for 12 years, is the very dynamic articulated in Leviticus 15. While difficult to say, tragically, we can, we can assume that the woman had committed some type of sexual sin that had resulted in a continual menstruation for 12 years. There was shame associated with her condition. Her situation was likely made worse. We're told that the physicians not only could do nothing to help her, they took all of her money. At this point, when she comes to Jesus, she's desperate and broke. She's got nothing left. Because of the flow of blood and the uncleanness that resulted, this woman, for 12 years, had been banned from all religious exercises. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't worship. She couldn't make sacrifices or pray. She was ostracized from the religious community. She wasn't allowed to go to the synagogue. Beyond that, she was scorned socially because no one could touch her without themselves being unclean, likely. Her husband was justified in divorcing her. She lost her family. Watched her kids, like a leper in many respects, grow up at a distance. What's really amazing is that in spite of all of that, after just hearing about Jesus, She she makes this conclusion. She reasons that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be made well. Amazing. like That's faith. In an act of faith, this woman makes her way through the mob, through the crowd. She gets close enough where she's able to reach out inconspicuously, grab his robe to her delight. She knows it in that moment. I'm healed. The blood's dried up. She could feel in her body there was no more affliction But she didn't expect what happened next, I promise. See, Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. Which causes him to turn around and and ask. He stops in the middle of the road. He's like, who touched me? Peter, you got to give him credit. He's like, who touched you? Everyone. Like, we're in a very narrow space. There's a lot of people thronging. Like, everyone's touching you, Jesus. This is a stupid question. The way the scene is described is, is Jesus then. He kind of ignores Peter. He doesn't respond to him. He's looking. He's looking. He knows. The woman now knowing she had been caught or told came, fearing, trembling, fell down before him, told him the whole story. And in response, Jesus loves on her. You're my daughter. It's just this really neat picture. This story. Now Leviticus 15 it set the stage for what happens here in Luke 8. And in fact Leviticus 15 goes one step beyond that. Because it sets the stage for the uncleanness that all of us are afflicted with. Every one of us have running issues. You know We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin manifests because of a condition, an internal one. And apart from Jesus, understand this, apart from Christ, apart from His touch, apart from His work in your life, the simple reality is every single one of us, we are all unclean until evil because of the disease of sin, (laughs) our lives, it emits a rank discharge. Sin oozes forth from all kinds of selfish behaviors and tendencies on account of the consequences, the wounds that result in our lives. You know, many of us, we're a bleeding wreck. Getting blood over everyone. Our internal defilement is made evident by the wickedness that emanates in the way we live. And while Leviticus 15 effectively diagnoses the condition, and it goes one step further by teasing the possibility of cleansing from such a horrid state, it is not until the interaction, this woman's interaction with Jesus, that we finally understand the remedy. Like how incredible that in a crowd of people thronging Jesus, it was this one woman who experienced a miraculous healing by touching him. Friend, don't miss this. I I want you to know that it is entirely possible for you to hang out with the people hanging out with Jesus. For you to be in the crowd, to be in the posse, to be around. In fact, it's even possible for you to bump into Jesus and never actually touch him to be healed. You see, the key distinction between the mob thronging Jesus and the woman that reached out and touched him was one thing. She acted in faith. This woman's belief that Jesus was able to cleanse her moved her to action. As Jesus says in the end, it was her faith that made her well. But you know, that's not all our story illustrates. When you study the ministry of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, kind of from a a larger perspective, big ideas, you'll notice that within his ministry, the majority of people that end up being healed by Jesus, they, they all operated under a belief, an assumption, that if they could get to Jesus, and that if Jesus would touch them, they would be healed. We saw that with the leper, Mark chapter 1. If I can get to Jesus and Jesus reaches out and is willing to touch me, then I can be healed. But what this story tells us is something really radical. She believed that if she could touch touch Jesus, she would be made well. The opposite. The idea is that there is just as much power to cleanse you of your internal running issues when you reach out and touch Jesus as there are when He reaches down and touches you. Which means, friend, instead of just sitting back and waiting for Jesus to reach down and touch your life and cleanse you of your sin, you can instead initiate the miracle by reaching up in an act of faith and grabbing hold of the hem of His garment. Leviticus 15. It fails to answer the ultimate question as to the mechanism of the initial cleansing, which we know from the woman's experience could be no one other than Jesus. But you know, the one thing our passage does provide some insight concerning is what should be done following a cleansing. And this is where there's an interesting application for us Christians. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, washed white as snow. And yet what happens once you're clean? I don't think it's an accident that our passage exhorts that individual to wash in running water, to bathe. In fact, that line is repeated over and over and over again. You see, a running issue naturally necessitates running water. Christian, you and I, the key to to dealing with these internal issues it's simple. Yes, we've been cleansed by Jesus, but we bear certain scars and wounds that still ooze, that still seep out, that still emanate. And what's the key? Well, it's, the, it's to be washed. How? By the Word of God. You see, you need a water that is both living and active, that is perceptive and intrusive, a water infused with power from on high. God's Word is the only cleansing agent we have in our spiritual lives. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, we're told that Jesus actively is actively sanctifying and cleansing us. How? Through the washing of water by His Word. That's what you do every time you come here on Sunday. I got this running issue. I've been oozing and bleeding, and it's nasty, and I'm making everybody unclean, and I just need, I just need to be washed by God's Word this morning. Jesus, I'm going to reach up and grab hold of you, and I need you to touch me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you. I just need a bath. I'm coming in from this world, and I've got all this muck and this, this gunk all over me, and I just I need to be cleansed. I stink. I'm infected. Cleanse me. In closing, let me do one more little pivot. I find there to be so much grace. So much grace. And knowing that following an encounter with Jesus, our uncleanness is only until evening. Think about that for a moment. It doesn't have to be a permanent state. Unclean, not forever, but until evening. Cleansing's possible. In Christ Jesus, our internal defilements, oh man, they give way to righteous standing. Sickness to wholeness. Brokenness to restoration. The dark night, the evening, always gives way to a glorious ray of a new day. It was on What? the eighth day, new beginning, restoration, resurrection, that she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons, bring them to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and be clean. So Father, Lord, we thank you for...